Welcome to the Empower Podcast, Coffee and Clarity. I'm Emily. And I'm Abby. Today we are joined by Samantha Farnham and Tim Slotma. My name is Samantha Farnham. I'm a nurse practitioner currently at Dulcifer Medical Center. I'm a mom of three and we live in a farm north of Truman. I started my education down in um, Olathe, Kansas at Mid-American Nazarene University where I received my Bachelor's of Science in Nursing and then proceeded to work for a few years um, doing multiple things in a clinic setting or and also in labor and delivery in Pella, Iowa and Grand Rapids, Michigan. I then went back to school at Clarkson College in Nebraska and got my master's of science in nursing with a specialty in family nurse practitioner. And I've been working at Dulcimer Medical Center since 2016. My name's Tim Slama, and I'm a family medicine doctor at Mayo Clinic Health System in Fairmont. I'm also the chief of staff at the hospital. I have worked in Fairmont for 10 years. I have my wife, Megan, and three kids. I also help coach the tennis team at Fairmont. I grew up in Winnebago and uh, graduated from Blue Earth area for high school and went to St. Thomas for um, undergraduate and then spent um, eight years in Des Moines for residency and medical school. Um, so could you guys provide a brief overview of what opioids are and why they are considered a significant public health concern? So when I think of opioids, I think of pain-relieving medicines. Um, you know, that from a medical standpoint, that's kind of what I think of them as. But uh, they can be misused, they can be abused, uh, they can lead to tolerance, they can lead to addiction. Um, I think in a very short-term setting, after surgeries, after breaking a bone, um, they can be great for pain relief, but uh, people can get hooked on them, they can get addicted to them, and I think over the last few years, uh, we've realized that and uh, really kind of changed our uh, practice styles to avoid those type of medicines as best as we can. What do you mean by tolerance? So when you take a medication, um, if you've taken it for a long period of time, your body kind of gets used to it. So then um, you need to take more and more of it to get the same effect. And opioids, you know, some common examples would be like hydrocodone, morphine, oxycodone. Um, basically, they work in you know, the pain receptors in your brain um, to make the pain go away, but they also kind of give you that high as well, and that's how people get addicted to them. There's the release of that dopamine that everyone wants to have where they don't have to feel that pain and don't have to go through, you know, it's like it numbs things for them. So people like that feeling and they want to get used to that feeling. But then over time, it requires more and more of that. The receptors get kind of lazy and they need more of it in order to get the same effect. That's where tolerance comes in. Uh, how do opioids work in the body and what makes them so addictive? Yeah, so I think Samantha kind of touched on that. They kind of release those endorphins in your body, um, uh, those kind of happy chemicals, um, but in just greater amounts. So then you really feel that, uh, that, that pleasure from taking them, but then your body keeps needing them and more and more and more, and that's how that addiction takes place. What are some common misconceptions about opioids? I think a common misconception would be that if your doctor or dentist prescribes it to you, that it's safe. Um, I think opioids have a lot of side effects. Um, they can cause a lot of damage um, uh, to your body, and a lot of people think it's the best way to treat pain. Uh, like, hey, I got my tooth pulled, or I broke my arm, I need some hydrocodone. Well, there are other ways and maybe better ways to help manage the pain. But I think people think that if they take one, you know, so you also see the opposite effect, where some people will take one narcotic, 
and they'll be afraid because they've been given it for surgery, but they've heard about addiction, so they're afraid to take it. There are times when it is appropriate, and if you take your medication as prescribed, that it's safe, the length of time that you take it and the amount of time and that it's prescribed to you is the part that's really important. Um, yeah, recently they've kind of got a bad rap, but taken correctly and taken as prescribed, they can be very useful. I'm just thinking like a patient I had today um, who's in hospice care. They mm -hmm. need that uh, medication to help relieve their pain at the end of life, but then other people are misusing and abusing those medications. So Red Ribbon Week focuses on drug prevention and education. Can you explain the importance of this initiative and its impact on communities? So I think any time that there's an epidemic or something that's affecting our children or our young adults or teenagers, it's super important to take a moment to reel us back in, to remind even those adults and parents and, and kids, you know, that this exists and that there is a problem and that we need to be aware. Um, sometimes we get busy in all the other worldly things that we have going on and we forget about some of those common things. And I know in medicine, there's a lot of things that we do on a daily basis and deal with. So I think it's important during these times to take a minute and remember what the side effects and symptoms and that there are risk of abuse and how to talk to our teenagers and how to be parents in that situation. Yeah, great for just like the awareness and the education and then gets people talking about it. Um, and then people can be more aware about it and um, find different ways to deal with it. How can parents, teachers, and community members effectively engage with young individuals to educate them about the risks of drug use? I think that's a great question. I think people have been trying to solve that problem for decades now. Um, when I was in school, we had like the D.A.R.E. program. Um, nowadays, I, it sounds like we're doing the Red Ribbon Week. Um, any you know ideas that people have um, for that education, that awareness, I think is great. Um, just that we are aware that we get the word out there, and we uh, and then we try. Um, I think every kid needs to kind of learn about it and, and be aware. Um, because there's kids that are going to make good choices and bad choices, and they need to be aware of the consequences and the side effects and the things that can happen to them. And I think it's important to to not only just think about it as parents, but you know, it's not always parents that teenagers come and talk to. Sometimes teenagers won't talk to a parent, so sometimes they're much more comfortable talking to a provider or to a friend or a family member or someone else. And so I think it's important that we educate not just teenagers, but parents and friends and all adults in that avenue so they know how to help kids when they're dealing with these things too. And you never know what's going to click with the kids too. I remember a commercial when I was growing up. Um, it was uh, the person had an egg and they said, this is your brain. And then they crack it and mm -hmm. put it in the frying pan. This is your brain on drugs. Mm -hmm. And I just always remember that commercial. It just always has stuck with me. But um, what sticks with me might not stick with someone else. So I think just having a lot of different options to get that education out there is important. What are some signs and symptoms that someone might be struggling with opiate addiction? think from a provider standpoint there's some physical signs that we look for as providers but then there's also signs that family members community members can see in people too like you're missing school um, you're not doing as well in school you're missing work um, I think those are some signs to watch for um, as a provider um, just you know maybe watching for some sores or scabs or puncture wounds change of appearance change in hygiene um, constricted pupils uh, being sick all the time, nauseous, upset stomach, uh, just kind of changes in their personality and behaviors. 
I think also watching, you know, friend groups. So if all of a sudden someone was, you know, hanging out with this one group and going to church or to other functions, and then all of a sudden now they're hanging with another group, that's a little concerning. Um, you know, all of a sudden not having an interest in a sport or activity at school that they used to be very, in, you know, into and very good at can be, you know, struggle and can be a struggle. Um, being more hostile with their friends or family members or uncooperative, you know, missing curfews, not coming home when they're supposed to, if they were previously very punctual. Um, or deadlines. We also watch like that, you know, running nose and itchy red eyes and things like that that can be possible, you know, possible sides, side effects. Mood swings, you know, someone who used to be all together and then all of a sudden is really moody and crabby at home or with their friends or teachers. How can family and friends uh, provide support? So I think having a good relationship with your medical provider is important. Um, if you notice some of these changes, having a conversation with your child, and if you're not comfortable with that or with your friend, you know, talking to their parents or talking to a teacher about that at school and just saying what you're concerned about and see if they can see things or have a conversation with that family member. Um, the other thing would be, you know, bringing that child or teenager or friend into the medical office so that we can do an assessment and also have a conversation. You know, those can be important things as well because there, there are ways that we can help them through those things. It's not a lost cause. Yeah, and medically, um, they have a high potential for withdrawal symptoms then too. If they've been abusing um, drugs for a while, um, those withdrawal symptoms could be significant as well, and they would need some medical care. Drug-free living involves more than just avoiding opioids. What are some practical tips and resources for maintaining a healthy and drug-free lifestyle? I like to tell people, you know, to be very aware of what you're putting in your body in general. I think if you're cautious about the foods you eat and the other chemicals and toxins that you intake, you're going to be a little bit more cautious about freely taking in a drug that your friends are offering to you. Um, so I think sometimes it's it starts with that. Um, the other thing that I tell people is, um, and then being aware of medications that you're taking, you know, so ask questions. When you are prescribed things, ask doctors or you know, the providers, what you're taking it for, how often you should take it. Um, pain medication can be helpful when you're having pain, but that doesn't mean just because it's prescribed every four to six hours that you have to take it every four to six hours. If you're doing okay and you're not having pain, I think it's okay to spread that out. You don't need a medication just because it's prescribed every four to six hours if you're not having that pain. So I think having that awareness is important as well. Um, and I like to tell my patients, you know, have an idea before you get into that situation of how you're going to get out of it. So if you get to a place where someone offers you something, know what you're going to say to those people before you get there and then have to say it. And I think, um, like, your friend group is so important. I mean, the kids that you're hanging around with, um, are they making good choices? Are they making bad choices? Um, what activities you're involved in? You know, trying kids who are more involved in activities, in sports, in music, in extracurricular activities, the group that you guys are in here, um, I think that's important um, to be involved in things like that and you have much less likely of a chance to make those poor choices. The pharmaceutical industry plays a role in op opioid availability. How can we strike a balance between appropriate medical use of opioids and preventing misuse? Yeah, I think um, in the past, the pharmaceutical industry, the medical profession um, has been 
a major player in that. Um, for a while there, it was kind of seen as a very common treatment for pain, and people were getting probably prescribed too many. And I think we have to, um, as medical providers, take ownership of that. And um, there's lots of steps. Like if I am going to prescribe an opioid now, I have to put in multiple passwords. I have to look at a certain website um, from the pharmaceutical industry um, that shows how many of those prescriptions that they've had. So people are less likely, mm -hmm. if they're going to multiple different doctors, um, we're, we're aware. So I, I think there's a lot more steps now in place to help and prevent that than there were in the past. I think insurance companies are starting to help too. So if we newly prescribe a, a narcotic or an opioid to someone, most insurance companies now only allow us to fill five days. So oftentimes, um, you know, kids, teenagers have gone into grandma and grandpa's or mom and dad's medicine cabinet and pulled old prescription bottles because we used to send people 30 days of medication and then if they didn't like the way they felt on it, they would just leave it in their cupboard. Well, now we aren't filling 30 days right off the bat. Insurance won't allow, allow it. So we are only starting with five days to make sure the patient tolerates it. It's a medicine that they're going to need. And if they need it more than that five days, then we're controlling that amount. The thing we do a lot in medicine is trying to um, do other meds first. So not just narcotics right off the bat. So we do a lot more over-the-counter NSAIDs, you know, things like that that patients, you know, sometimes don't want to take quickly, um, but it's, you can get just as much pain relief from them without the side effects as well. Yeah, and patients have to sign agreements now too that you're only going to get those type of medications from one doctor. You can only fill them at one pharmacy mm -hmm. um, and just a lot of steps. And, and I would agree, it's probably way down the line where we start thinking about those options. There's so many other alternatives and so many other pain relief uh, methods that we would use first. How can healthcare professionals work collaboratively with educators and community leaders to reinforce the message of drug prevention during Red Ribbon Week? I think in conversations like this, you know, talking to providers and meeting with students and just having awareness. Um, I think that's a great way to open conversations and doors. If you have a patient who's already struggling with opioid addiction, what are their options? There's a lot of different options, but what I would highly recommend would be a rehab program. Um, I think you can get the uh, therapy, counseling, and support that you need, um, but also some maybe medication-assisted treatment because you might have those withdrawal symptoms. Um, we may have to like wean down using some medications that are similar to opioids that help with those withdrawal symptoms. Um, so I think rehab is a great option. Um, there's also support groups like Narcotics Anonymous, um, you know, certainly family members, uh, talking with them, therapists in the area, um, many different options to help. Are there any stories that you have um, related to prevention that you've seen that have impacted the community? As part of my practice, um, we provide newborn care in the hospital. And unfortunately, um, at times we've had moms who have had positive drug screens during pregnancy, and we have to get law enforcement agencies involved, and sometimes those babies get taken away from their family members. Um, but some of the success stories are those moms coming back later, um, and they've went through rehab, they went through treatment, they're uh, no longer addicted uh, 
to the opioid or medication or drug of abuse, and they're back with their family. They, they have their baby back, and uh, that's just been a huge success story. Any time that you can get patients more pain relief other ways, so physical therapy, chiropractic care, I think people who have been on narcotics or opioids for pain relief oftentimes think that's what they're stuck with, that there aren't other options. So even getting them into some of those other programs, because some people, you know, over time and long-term opioid use, the pain can start coming back again and you need more and more. Um, and we as providers have learned that that's how that works. And so looking for other options first for them um, or during that time period as well to help them with that pain relief. So I've had a few patients who have actually had success in decrease their pain use by going through some of those, um, you know, injections or TENS units or physical therapy or chiropractic care, things that can help them with their pain that don't cause them, you know, long-term side effects and the narcotic tolerances. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And thank you so much for watching. Join us next time on Coffee and Clarity.